0: Listener production.
1: Okay, are you recording?
2: Hello, good people. Welcome along to episode 131 of the Howie Games, part A, with a goat. (laughs) Yep, a goat. Sean White. This man is the greatest snowboarder of all time. Three Olympic gold medals and 13 Winter X Games golds tell only part of Sean's story. Sean White takes gold in Pyeongchang in the most emphatic fashion. The other part of his story, Sean's ability to progress the sport of snowboarding through his performance levels and creativity. Like Kelly Slater in the surf and Tony Hawk on his skateboard, Sean has taken his sport to places it has never been before. And he has also won two summer X Games golds on his skateboard on the vert ramp. Incredible.
1: So many lost and left behind. And no one seemed to care. Those who should seems like they're blind. Pretending they're not there. Can't they see they hold the key? Could make things better if they try. Oh, my Jaja, tell me why. Won't they open up their eyes?
2: So the way I see it, Sean has also been at the forefront of bringing the Olympic Games to a whole new audience, a younger, cooler audience, which is vital to the ongoing success and relevance of the Games. 1.6 million followers on his handle on Instagram, at Sean White. Music, clothing, attitude, skill and general awe at what he's able to do. Sean and snowboarding bring all this to the wonderful tradition of the Olympic Games. Now we're seeing skateboarding, BMX, surfing all being included. Watch the games with kids as I do. And it's these so-called extreme sports that really engage them. Sean White is the epitome of everything new the Olympic Games were looking for. It is not every day. You get to spend a couple of hours chatting to a goat. I love the opportunity. I hope you all love the episode. Enjoy the full-throttle world of Sean Roger White.
1: So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be revealed In King Selassie I Come on children, tread with me. We wanna reach
2: Mount This man, a superstar of world sport, triple Olympic gold medalist, snowboarder, skateboarder, musician. I am so happy to have him on the Howie Games. His name is Sean White. He comes to us from the Hollywood Hills in California. Sean, thanks for joining me on the show. How are you, great man? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm glad this
0: all came together.
2: Well, it has come together and I want to give people an understanding. We obviously don't know each other. We don't move in the same circles. Mm-hmm. We had a couple of technical hitches where you only had your phone and I said, can you record it on a second device? And a lot of people at that stage would say, oh no, this is the way I'm going to do it. And you took the time to get someone around to help you and provide a new computer. taking taken up an extra hour in your day so we can do that. And I really appreciate that. And it just strikes me that therefore you must be a really good dude and I appreciate you going and doing that for me.
0: Yeah, no problem at all. I get it. I get it. Uh, but, yeah, I, I I am the worst at, at being prepared for these things too, so I was like definitely on my bad.
2: <laughs> no, we're all good but now. Yeah. Hey, hey, mate, how, how is life at the moment? We were speaking before we went on about quarantine and and the situation here in Australia compared to to the states and it's great to see how many people have been vaccinated in that part of the world and you're making real progress how does this affect you as an athlete you know it's it's been it's been uh
0: complicated you know it's it's definitely been a hard season because majority of the competitions were cancelled and um I like to use the competitions as warm ups. Honestly, you know, if I show up to an event, I don't do well, I get motivated, I come back to the next event, and I use it as this building block throughout the season. But all the events got canceled, so I'm kind of like, you know, guessing what my competitors are doing, and I'm kind of like trying to stay on top of what Michael's throughout the season where even without the competitions, mm. um, like obviously we would be heading toward New Zealand or Australia at, uh, around um, in a month or so from now. And uh, we can't do that. Obviously the borders are pretty tough. Canada, it's really hard to get into Canada. Um, you know, Europe, some places in Europe you can get into, but it's, it's been really challenging. So um, so that's that's been the battle. And then at least for me, I, I don't know, I'm personally used to taking some time away from the sport. So when everything really shut down and we weren't doing, you know, much at all, like I, I was okay with that. I was, I was, you know, content with being where I was and going, okay, well, I'll find the time to train when I find the time to train. And this is just kind of how it goes. I mentioned, um, when we first got on, I read this book. Yeah. Yeah, you did. <laughs> uh, what, well, tell and, us the name uh, of the book. Yeah. The book is called Loving What Is, <laughs> uh, by Byron Katie, um, really amazing woman. And it's all about obviously, you know, a, a agreeing with the current situation that is reality. So the reality is I can't go snowboard anywhere right now. And the, the torment I could give myself is like, I should be snowboarding right now. I, I should be doing this. And you, you you kind of take the story away from what's going on in your brain and go, oh, well, I can't. And that's the reality. So let's love what is currently the situation and and not, you know, torment torment ourselves with what what could and should and and ought to be. So um, it was a really great book at a really great time for me. And um, so I was pretty content with, you know, Hey, as long as my family's healthy and you know, I'm healthy and the people I care about are doing well, then that's, that's great. So definitely challenging, but
2: got through it. So. There's so many things I wanna ask you about, Sean, but Mm -hmm. you mentioned there, and we'll frame a lot of this through the Olympics, but you've had so much success. You've won three gold medals. You've been to four Olympics. There's an Olympics next year, 2022 in China, a winter games. What, why? Like what else do you have to prove? Like you've got so (laughs) much in your life. You understand what I mean? Like the obvious question is why keep going?
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's a wonderful question. I mean, I think for me, every time I mean just looking at Olympic cycles I would say every time the Olympics presents itself it just kind of like you know brings a new motivational something with it Mm. and I and I have this fight in me still and so every time is a little different and I think using those lessons learned from the past and being still motivated at this age I mean I don't know I, I think at this point um You know, having those past lessons as well as, you know, watching guys like, you know, Tom Brady and, um, Mm. you know, some of the seasoned sort of athletes going the distance um, in their later years is pretty inspiring. Um, So that's definitely something I think about and uh, I kind of wear it as a badge now that I'm one of the older, actually I think the oldest competitor in the half pipe.
2: (laughs) Which seems bizarre because the world's used to seeing you as as this young fella. I want to base a lot of this around... Um, the Olympics, because it's like having Kelly Slater on the show. We can't go through 11 world titles. We can't go through all the success you've had in the in the X Games, etc. cetera. But mate, before it all started, and I, and I did a fair bit of reading, mm-hmm. we have a lot of kids listen to this show. You, you had to have um, a bit going on medically in your life as a really, really young fella, yeah?
0: Yeah. Um, when I was born, I was born with the congenital heart defect called Tetralogy of Fallot. And um, basically a lot of the you know, I had, I had leaking valves and there's a couple of holes in my heart and not to get too technical, but I had to get that repaired and it took oh. a, a, a couple surgeries and I was supposed to be a very inactive and sluggish sort of child. Um, but my parents never really like set these limits on my, hmm. my life at that young age. So they let me just kind of do my thing and, um, find my own boundaries. And obviously like I fell in love with, um, Soccer and um, you know some traditional sports, but when skateboarding and snowboarding came along, I was like, "This is this is it for me."
2: Um, what was it? What was it about? What what grabbed you about those those two?
0: Well, it was tough. I mean, at the time, um, and and to each his own. You know, some people prefer the team element, but I love the fact that I got to practice when I wanted to practice. You know, there wasn't a, a team pra- I could be at the skate park. All day, or it could be there for two hours or an hour, 20 minutes. Like it was all up to me. And when I was there, I got to wear what I wanted to wear. I got to work on the tricks that I wanted to work on. And there was no real playbook for the tricks. You could kind of improvise your own technique or style of doing something. And it really lent to be more creative. And I loved that element. And at the time, as I was getting older in those traditional sports, I I, I, trust me, I loved soccer. It was like my thing. I really loved soccer. And, Hmm. um, I remember thinking, you know, this is so great. I made my way all the way up to this like AAA soccer league and it got, you know, a little political, you know, one of the parents had donated the uniforms oh, and yeah. their son got to play and I'm, you know, and so- now I'm like missing skateboarding time and time to do snowboarding and things like that in order to go to these soccer games and I'm getting benched and i'm just sitting there like well, why am i here if i'm not going to play and um you know but i was a really great player just i just didn't have the you know um, yeah. we didn't bring the bigger uh, orange slices to the <laughs> you know uh halftime gig so i i don't know it was just it just something spoke to me with these sports and then um and then my older brother introduced me to these sports so he was obviously everything to me and he's seven years older and so i just worshipped what he did and um and then through the skate park i made friends i i you know my brother would come skate and that's how i I ended up meeting tony hawk uh he skated at the local park um he actually partnered with a sponsor his i think nike at the time and they rebuilt the entire skate park so like talk about being in the right place at the right time
2: and were you like wow that's tony hawk at that say you would have been it would have been everywhere yeah i was freaking out um i remember seeing him and just and he's so tall for a
0: skateboarder which is so funny um and and i just remember being terrified to talk to him huh. i wasn't i wasn't like i was outgoing but i wasn't the super like hey i'm gonna run up on you and start talking to you as a little kid i was more i was pretty timid. Um, which kind of got me a bad rap as I got older because I was really shy Mm -hmm. and people would, you know, want to come talk to me, but I wouldn't know what to say, especially like if older kids come up to you and they're like, Hey, you're Sean White. What's up? You know? And I would just kind of like cower and (laughs) try to run away. Like, Oh, adults, older kids. Like I would just, (laughs) I didn't want to talk to him. So they are like, Oh, he's stuck up. He's a, (laughs) he's a jerk. Um, But you know, it was, it was a tough time. And, and so anyways, with Tony Hawk, I remember seeing him, and thinking, okay, I'm too scared to approach him, but if I skate, like, incredibly well, maybe he'll come talk to me. <laughs> and so he would show up, and I would just, like, go. I would do every single trick I could think of and um, and, and try in hopes to impress him. Because my dream was not only for him to come say hi to me, but to come say hi and be like, would you like to be on Birdhouse Skateboards? <laughs> you know, like, uh, no, was- like, such a childish sort of, like... <laughs> You know, and he pulls the magic golden skateboard out and it <laughs> upon me. You know, like, I, I don't know what I was thinking, but um, he finally, you know, would say hi to me, see, recognize me at the park, and then he invited me to a skateboard demo he was doing. And that was just, like, my dream come true.
2: Of course it was, mate. Can you remember the demo on hanging out with Tony? Um, Yeah, I remember
0: my mom dropping me off at his house and my mom like I don't know why but she made me do everything kind of on my own to an extent so she's like oh it's like here's the house you got to walk up there and ring the bell and do all this I was like oh my god okay and I like rang the bell and this giant gate opened to this beautiful house (laughs) with all these cars and I remember walking up and I don't see anyone so I feel like I'm trespassing and like he comes out. He's like, "Yeah, but just, yeah, throw your stuff in the car. Let's go." And I got in his car, and it was like the first time I'd ever seen a car with like a TV in it. <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> like, he's like, "You want to play PlayStation?" He like opened the glove box, and I'm like, now play PlayStation. I was like, "This is the coolest day of my life. Like this is <laughs> this is insane." But I do remember, and I love telling this story because it's so funny. And you've talked to Tony, so you get it. But
1: yeah.
0: Um, I remember playing video games and I'm like, what is on my hand? The controllers were like sticky and I'm like, they were like covered in like jelly, you know, cause he's got kids. He's got all, you know, he's ah. got a bunch of kids. And so I was like, Oh, like he's a dad. Yeah. <laughs> it, kinda, it didn't shatter my vision of him cause he was still Tony Hawk, but it, it humanized him to be like, Oh wow. And you know, maybe we could be friends and um, you know, just really, really great um, sort of role model at that time for me because he on his career path was going through basically all the things that were about to happen to me. Not so much like video game and this exact particular success, but more just like being recognized, you know, um, having to cut up your time between, you know, family time and friends and, and work time and really kind of having this balanced sort of career and, and, and utilizing that time wisely and, um, and, and staying the same person through it all.
2: So it's a rare opportunity, I guess, at that stage as a young bloke, Sean, to get a full insight into the life of a superstar. Yeah. What did you learn at that point from Tony? You know, I remember we were in a limousine and the guy
0: was like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry, Tony Hawk. Like uh, I should have changed the ice. I know you want drinks. It's the ice from the last ride. And he's just like, who who do you think I am? Like, and he, I'll eat the dirty ice. I don't care. You know, he's just like the down to earth sort of guy, you know, the fame and the the su- success hadn't changed him one bit. So, um,
2: you know, it was nice, nice. There's a, there's a really good couple of points you made there, Sean, that I'd love to ask you about. At, at what state? like how old were you when you turned pro? And at what stage were you, like we joked around the player profile about one of your nicknames was, future boy. At at what stage did the world start recognizing you and knowing you? And you're a kid at that stage. Yeah. Pretty quickly in my own bubble
0: of, you know, snowboarding up at Big Bear and Snow Summit, like I was kind of the local kid that was like the prodigy kid. And um, no one knew what I looked like. I was kind of like Kenny from South Park (laughs) because I just had I think he also has red hair. Like, I had goggles. <laughs> I had this giant helmet. I had a mask because I have fair skin. I get sunburnt. I was like, my hand me down gloves. And, you know, and so no one really knew what I looked like. They were like, oh, that's the future boy or that's the, that's the Burton kid because I got picked up by Burton when I was seven. Oh, I love
2: Future Boy. That's really yeah, I'm, yeah, right. I'm Future yeah. Boy.
0: Let's meet our youngest competitor, Sean White, and find
1: out how he got into snowboarding.
0: Yeah, we went to Mammoth, and uh, they had a uh, the OP uh, Pro event at June Mountain, and we took him over there. And they happen to have a little bitty board, a little bit bigger than a skateboard. He was six years old, and we thought we'd give him a try on it. So
1: my brother like taught me like how to like go and like pump the sides and stuff, and get like big air. And he taught me like all my tricks.
0: And it wasn't because I was that great that. Burton just started making kids boards. They were the only ones to offer kids boards at that time. And they're like, oh, yeah, like we need kids to test the product. And why don't you call the California rep? And so I started riding for Burton. So how old are you at this stage? I was seven at that age. Seven? Yeah, and I was getting recognition. I had a couple sponsors and I was like, doing my thing. I wasn't making any money because you're not allowed to uh, accept money and that that determines if you're pro or not. So I was still amateur. But at that point, I was getting recognized. Um, And then things really kicked off when I was 16, I want to say. I had a breakout year where 15, I won just about, excuse me, 15, I got second at about all the events I entered. And um, by 16, I was winning, you know, all the major competitions. And, you know, I got the call to do MTV Cribs and like all these <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous things and people were recognizing me and, you know, I, I was pretty recognizable. I had this long red hair and um, a certain style. And uh, so I, that was, that was when things really kicked off for me, I would say at 16. And then by 19, it was, I, I couldn't, well, I couldn't go down the block without It was like, oh, am I going to get recognized today to like, I'm definitely going to get spotted
2: today. And like, I need to be ready for that. And so that's when it all changed. And how do you deal at that? Like All of us at 16, 17, 18, we're going through a lot of things in our life. Mm-hmm. How are you not becoming that celebrity brat?
0: Yeah. You know what
2: I mean? Like how are you keeping on a path without getting pulled in all these other directions?
0: I think, I mean... I think it was the people around me were very solid. Obviously, I had my parents still in the mix, which was great, and they come from you know humble beginnings and things. My mom's a waitress. My dad worked in the city of San Clemente in the water department, and um, you know we we were definitely middle class, and we got to you know take some trips here and there, like obviously go to the to the resorts, and um, and in the beginnings it was all about like you know making it, and so that was instilled in me from a young age that like, I wasn't staying at the nice resorts. Like we were in a van, all five of us driving from, you know, competition to competition okay. to make ends meet. And, you know, I think a lot of that sort of stuck with me and my parents stuck with me. And then I really feel like I was able to grow with my success. And that's a big thing because I've seen plenty of people, um, in, in the world of success or, or I, I don't know going I say world of success, but it, you know, all of a sudden thrust into the limelight, and that's got to be pretty wild to be some nobody, really. Mm. And then you're in a hit movie or a hit TV show and everybody knows exactly who you are. And they're not even calling you by your real name. They're calling you by your character's name or are <laughs> you know. And so I, I feel like that must be incredibly hard. I was able to, you know, start as the local hero kid and like make my way up and then Cribs <laughs> and then, Cribs You know Cribs <laughs> It's so funny Because I'll, I'll travel Through the airport Somewhere in London Or wherever And they're like Hey are you that guy And I'm like, I'm like Oh here it comes You know Three gold medals uh, And Mr You know I'm like well, You want MTV Cribs
2: be <laughs> like, able well, like to find that On YouTube Tell oh, me I'm I can sh- find it I'm that. sure
0: oh, I'm sure I was like How is that still following me
2: <laughs> What's up MTV My is Sean White And welcome to my crib Come on in I'm not a big fan of washing the dishes, so I kind of avoid it. Refrigerator, it's not much going on in
0: here. I just got like straight up milk and like Mountain Dew. Got lettuce, cheeses, and random stuff like that. Tortillas. That's what it's all about. But no, I I feel like I was able to grow with the success of it all, and especially with the money you know, I really was content. I had everything I wanted. You know, I, I, if I had money, I would buy snowboards and skateboards and stuff like that. So I I wasn't really too excited about that. I love the idea of making money and having it in order to like secure what I was told is like a future because the sport, this, the world of sports is very, um, turbulent you know it can be here today gone tomorrow and that was always instilled in me at a young age like yeah this is great but definitely take advantage of the situation when you can and and make money for your future and so that was something my parents taught me and I think through it all I just felt like I was the same person with you know uh, through hard work and and real dedication to these goals you know having these amazing things happen to me so um so yeah those were kind of um the pillars and things that I, I continue with me, like I'll still go clean up after my dog and pack my own suitcase and carry my bags and like I, I don't know. I think I think it too the the sport in which I, um, I uh, compete in isn't so
2: yeah. glamorous at times. <laughs> I, I can hear your dog in the background. What's your dog's name? Oh, uh, Steve. 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 Jeez, a bit of thought gone into
0: that. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Steve. You know, I was sitting there and,
2: Steve. and for some, for,
0: so for some reason it was like, I, I'd watched this like kind of raunchy adult cartoon that I think was just on YouTube. And there's a professor in the show named Steve that was always blowing it. And they're like, Oh God, Steve. Like they were all, and so it was in my head. And for some reason it was either Steve or uh, the name Jagger. And I was like, I am on the fence, Steve's really speaking to me, and, and a buddy of mine came over, I told him the two names, and he's like, hey, look, you know, you can't you can't talk to a jagger, nah. but you you pull your damn heart out to
2: Steve. So yeah. I was like, okay, okay, all right, Steve it is. Back to Sean in a moment. Next up on the show, we are privileged to be bringing you one of the more amazing stories ever heard on this podcast. It features the first Sudanese-born footballer to ever play in the AFL, Jack Door. It's a story with many, many different threads. Some of them are uplifting, some will make you laugh, some are heartbreaking, some that will make you cry, some that a lot of people won't be able to relate to. They come together to form a tale of strength, resilience and learning. When your mum and dad tell you, right, we're moving to Australia, that is like mommy saying to my 11 year old, right, we're moving to Khartoum, Sudan. Th- they're going to have no concept of where we're even talking about. I presume you hadn't even heard of Australia at this point.
1: I've heard of Australia because of other people um,
2: coming here. Right. Other, other migrants and refugees. But in terms of what it looked like, I heard a lot of people talk about Sydney. Um, mm-hmm. But. No, nothing. Um, the only thing is, was probably um, kangaroo. Uh,
1: <laughs> people, people will really use their imagination. There, there were stories going around, you know, uh, roads made out of glasses, um, <laughs> uh, milk coming out of the tap. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty. Um, it was. I had no idea.
2: Did you speak any English when you arrived in Australia?
1: No, I didn't speak a word of English at all.
2: This episode will actually drop next. Tuesday. That's next Tuesday, not Thursday. In conjunction with the release of Madge's phenomenal new book, Madgeac by Madgeacdor and Heath O'Loughlin, you can pre-order the book right now via penguin.com.au or buy it on Tuesday as soon as it comes out. All right, let's get back to Sean. As I said, I sort of wanted to frame this around your Olympic Games and you gave us a a, a bit of a preface uh, at the start of the podcast. Mm -hmm. My memories of Torino... Uh, you with the wild red hair, and you, mm-hmm. I reckon you had the American bandana on and it was, mm-hmm. wow, who is this guy? Uh, you won the Olympic gold medal. What's that like for the first time when you stand on top of the podium as the best mm-hmm. in the world at what you do? I mean, it's it's wild. It's a mixture
0: of, you know, I mean, as an athlete, you you know, For most athletes, I would assume, it's like you strive to reach this certain pinnacle. Um, And at the time, I'd won X Games, I'd won certain things, but it, it doesn't really, you know, if you're sitting next to somebody on an airplane and you go, oh, I've won this many X Games medals. Maybe now it's more well known, but at the time, especially they're like, oh, that's that's cool you know but if you're like i'm an olympic gold medalist it just Mm. carries such weight yeah and i'd only experienced the olympics through movies like the miracle uh um, uh the hockey miracle and awesome Uh, exactly yeah and so you know things like that and um and it really was you know truly a mixture of like a, a surreal sort of movie along with you know this horrible nervousness all bottled up into this one major event but um
2: but i'll never forget it hello everyone welcome to Bardonecchia, in italy here at the 2006 winter olympic games in torino it's the men's snowboard halfpipe coming up from this beautiful resort pretty close to the french border this one of the most anticipated events of these 2006 winter olympic games
0: yeah, I was I was pretty nervous. I don't think I was as nervous as I should have been because I didn't I didn't fully understand what was on the line. Yeah, you know, or, or if I would have known the success that was going to come to me after winning that medal, I would have been more nervous of like what was on the line of where my life was going to go if I was able to accomplish this feat. Um, so I was pretty relaxed. I was almost too relaxed. I fell in my first qualifying run. And my brother came up to me. He's like, "What happened?" Like, wh-? and I could see this horror in his face. And I was just like, "Oh, it's cool, man. Like, we got another run." He's like, "What if you fall in that run?" I'm like, "Oh God!" So then <laughs> I started <laughs> getting, I started getting really nervous. I was like, "Oh my goodness, you know." And and I don't know why this happens. And it's never like, of course, I get to the top. I got maybe like four guys to go before I go, and I get like a nosebleed randomly. So I'm, yeah, so I'm sitting there with like tissues and the gauze and like I'm <laughs> avoiding the MVC cameras and I was like how could this co- happen right now and like I'm you know and they're like we got th- three more guys you better like I'm like okay. And <laughs> and so I I I drop in I nailed the qualifying run, things are great.
1: Well, this guy had the highest score in qualification, 45.3, 19-year-old Sean White from Carlsbad, California, the only guy in this competition wearing a bandana, at least around his face.
0: And so I was warmed up, I was fresh, I was ready, and I absolutely nailed the run I was looking for.
1: Besides the Italians and the French riders, this guy gets the loudest cheers out of anyone. He's a regular footer rider, right now, going forward. Starts it off with a twist. This is a different routine so far than his qualifying runs. Now you're getting into a 1080, three rotations, and into a cab 1080. That's the back-to-back tens that we've talked about in the past that riders need to be doing to be on the podium. And if one guy knows how to lay down the winning run, it's this guy.
0: And then I'm sitting there at the top waiting for you know, a rider to best my score, and it just never happened.
1: Wow, first place, 46.8. Last time he went to the Olympics, or last time he just missed going by point four. So that is the highest score that the judges have awarded all day for Sean White. They're 46.8.
0: And I would won. It was over. And I got what's called a victory lap. So I've already won. I got to drop in and just celebrate. But the new
2: men's snowboard Halfpipe gold medalist at these Torino 2006 Winter Olympics is Mr. Sean White, there he is. The job was done on run number one. Will we see something special from Sean White or will it just be a show for
0: the fans? So I'm doing a big air, I'm slashing the wall and you know, just having fun with it. And I got to the bottom and I'll never forget pulling up to my family and you know they're all there and they're all crying they're all in tears and um my mom leaned in and she she's i'll never forget it she said you know you you did it it was all worth it you know and, and forever you'll never ever not be introduced or known as sean white the olympic gold medalist that's a title you'll carry for the rest of your life and i i was like i'm gonna get choked up thinking about it but um That was heavy. That's when the magnitude of it all hit me, and knowing what I had done, and honestly, what we had done. Because as a family, you know, my parents calling in sick for work to get me to the mountains. You know, I wasn't driving myself. Um, You know, my family missing my sister's soccer game so that they could get me to where I needed to go, putting their lives on hold. You know, so much effort Mm. and time, and and really a, a a family coming together to make this all happen for me. So I, I really took it as a win for all of us. And, um, you know, so many parent teacher conferences or sort of people saying, you know, your kid's gonna be nothing or, you know, you'll never make it. And like, what is snowboarding anyways? Like we might as well have been like, oh, we're gonna be professional (laughs) yo-yo. This, i i'm sorry to the the yoers out there um i do appreciate your skills because i am terrible at it that's why it's 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 actually something i wish i was better at but you know like uh, sword fighting or something i don't know something random and yeah and uh or or you know, yeah and it just it just we had done it at that point every every you know bit bit of uh uh effort along the way and the, the hardship of it all and and you know, my, my parents had like taken a loan on their house to help me pay for this whole thing. And it all had been worth it for this moment. And um and so that was wild. And then after that, it just pushed me to this level of uh recognition and success that I had never really known. You know, I was on the cover of Rolling Stone, and um when it came out, there's a little blurb about, you know, how there's only two other athletes to ever be on the cover of Rolling Stone, and that was Muhammad Ali and Michael. Michael Jordan. Wow! And so I was like, and now me like, you know what I mean? It was it was wild. And so every everything that was happening at that point was was pretty, you know, um, uncharted terrain, and um, and it was it was wild.
2: I know you've been on there a couple of times. The one that I yeah. can remember, I really really enjoyed. You've got the American pants on, and you burnt <laughs> your snowboard, sort of Jimi Hendrix style.
0: Yeah. So the the to a great great uh great call out there because Jimmy was supposed to be on the cover.
2: Ah that
0: that that uh edition and so when ah. he was they they bumped him back in order to put me on and Hang I on. was
2: like they bumped Jimmy Hendrix for you. Jimmy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
0: So <laughs> wow. sorry, sorry Jimmy. Sorry, Jimmy uh, Sorry about it. So <laughs> We pushed Jimmy, and then I was I was sitting there thinking like, oh, we should you know throw to Jimmy. We should do like a something. So that's when the lighting the board on fire you know came through. And the funniest thing about those pants is there's a whole saga. It's not. It's a little. It's a little different than the the sisterhood of the traveling pants. But <laughs> if you know your movies, <laughs> I do. I do. Okay. I do. Okay. So these pants, I had watched, I don't know how my mind works in these ways, but I like to set goals for myself. And a lot of the goals are big goals, like winning the Olympics and, you know, hey, I want to be on the Rolling Stone cover again. Those are the big goals. And uh, huh. and then I set these little goals for myself. And so I was at the Hard Rock Casino in Las Vegas, and I love that casino because there's all the rock and roll memor- memorabilia everywhere. Yeah. And I was sitting there thinking, like, how could I get something of mine in this casino on display because I don't play, you know, I do play music. And at the time I was pretty secretive about my guitar playing. But I was like, oh, well, if I was on the Rolling Stone cover again, you know, maybe they would put like the magazine up and whatever I wore on the cover because they had people's outfits, like Slash's jacket and guitar and all these different things. And so that set me on this quest of like, oh, okay. And And I remember watching this Guns N' Roses video with Axl Rose, and he's wearing these super short, short American flag. You know. But the shorts. Yeah, the shorts they, on, did Tiny he? shorts. The tiny shorts. And I was like, well, I don't know if I'm gonna go that route, but I could do <laughs> pants. Pants for sure. So I had those made in order to. So that was the goal. So the goal ah. became we should I should I need to wear the pants, you know, on the cover of Early Stone, which meant I would have won the Olympics. So it kind of like brought this really big, scary goal down to a fun sort of thing. And so I had the pants made, ready to go. I ended up, I mean, it just all played out. I won the Olympics. I got the phone call. Rolling Stone wants to do the cover. I shot the thing. The snowboard lit on fire. And then we called the Hard Rock. rock, And for, I don't know, six months or a year, it was on display, the burnt board with the pants and the medal. Like, it was all... And that was just me scheming the whole time of like, how can I, how can I pull this all together? But, um, but yeah, it's, it's wild how, you know, you set these kind of goals. And at least in my life, I've seen that if I do these kind of things, it, it happens. It can, it can come true or I can, I don't know, I, I don't want to call it like nudging the universe to, you know, come my way, but you know, a lot of things in my life have come to me and I've just got to be open to it.
2: So is it that type of attitude, call it what you like, that type of approach that led to Red Bull actually building you your own half pipe? Yeah. How did that happen?
0: I was surfing with a friend of mine and he's like, "Hey, like you got to win this next Olympics." And I was thinking to myself, "Well, yeah, you know, how are we going to do that?" And he's like, "Man, we should have a private half pipe. We should do a private setup because riding at the resorts at this point, people are standing trying to take selfies with me while I'm in the air." Ed, on the edge of the half pipe wall are trying to talk to me before I drop in and do a big run, and you can 't have filmers in the pipe because they could get hit by people and it 's just a really weird you know thing now with the with the with the recognition I have on the slopes and uh we were like, we should do a private half pipe and I was like, you know what they 're doing in gymnastics and and Travis is doing in motorcycling. they have these giant foam pits why don 't we build a foam pit and it 's set in motion this whole thing with uh red bull where i ended up doing a private half pipe build and for the first time ever bringing a foam pit to the half pipe and it changed the sport um now we use airbags and things yeah but it changed the sport forever so i always feel like you know if i'm still enough and open enough to ideas and things that come my way it's a really um you know, uh, a powerful thing. Some something will happen. Something will come to me, and I have to be open enough to follow it, or or have guts enough to do it and see it through. So I found that.
2: So with with your with your second Olympic gold medal, yeah, uh, we go to Vancouver. Now I, I was I was watching this, um, and you you'd already won before your last run, yeah. uh, run. So, so you get a free run, and, and they're pumping it up that he's going to do the double McTwist 1260. I'm not a snowboard guru, <laughs> yeah. but it, it, it hit me, and I loved the commentary, and obviously as a sports broadcaster, and I don't know whether you appreciate this, but you know, uh, we're going to see uh, skateboarding in the games. We're about to see surfing in the yeah. games. By the time this has gone to air, there will have been surfing in Japan, and, and it's all about bringing the Olympics to a younger audience, Mm-hmm. So people stay connected to the games. Watching you do your make Twist 1260, full rock star treatment, it hit me that this was the beginning of the revolution mm. of expanding the Olympic repertoire to bring it to younger people and a younger audience. That is a great gift to be able to give Sean. I loved everything about mm. that moment. It was it, it was not traditional Olympics, it was the new Olympics. Mm.
0: No, I appreciate that. I mean, that was a wild time. I remember being at the X Games just before the Olympics and I had done that trick and you know something was just off. I'm flying through the air. I'm like, okay, something's wrong. I come around and there's the wall. And it had, it had hit the side of my face and actually popped my helmet off. That's also on YouTube if you want to check it out. It literally looks like my head flies off <laughs> and- I'll check
1: it know, out. Yeah, yeah. It's worth the watch. And as he flips backwards, he's blind. So not until right there does he realize he's in trouble. You see the helmet explode off his head. It was strapped on tightly. That is a block of ice that basically he took to the face. You can see the frustration
2: in his eyes, and it actually looked like he's trying to comprehend what happened. Uh,
0: and so, you know, there was a lot of, you know nervousness around that trick, especially for me knowing that I could hit my face and have hit my face a couple times. And a friend of mine, a guy named Kevin Pierce at that point was in a coma from yeah. hitting his head. And it was just a really intense time. And so at that Olympics, I had already won, like you said, with my first run.
1: Repeat gold for Sean White. All right. Yeah.
0: Woo! And I have a victory run. And at this point I was like, Thinking to myself, look, you 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 know you can do this trick. Don't leave anything on the table. Like this is this isn't even for the score, this isn't for anybody but yourself. And I didn't I, I wanted to show like how much hard I'd put into snowboarding at this point and what I was capable of.
1: Yeah, I can't ride right now, man. You're right. You're right. Do whatever you want. Oh, what do you think? Do? do whatever you want. Yeah. Have some yeah. fun. Uh, what, what do you want to do? do, do? I don't know, man. man. Ride down the middle. <laughs> nah, Drop a double mick. Yeah, drop a double Mick, at the end. Do whatever you want
0: and send that thing. So, like, it didn't matter if I was going to get carted out of there or whatever. I was going to do this trick. To, to, to bring it back in perspective of the half pipe, we might see that double core 1260 that we wanted to see. That yep. would be the icing on this cake.
1: Sean White, the move that everyone has been talking about. The move that some have called the Big Mac, the Big McTwist, the double McTwist 1080. Some have called it the White Snake. I call it insane. We're gonna look for it on the bottom hit, the last hit of his run.
0: Um, and so I, I drop in, I get to that last hit. And if you watch the footage, I actually land really low on the hit before. So that's your setup trick. So if that trick's not that great, it really puts you in a tougher position to do the trick on the next wall. And I was just so like determined to do it, I just willed it to happen. One more hit, here is the setup.
1: Oh to this hit oh and there it is Oh,
0: <laughs> on a victory lap landed the run uh bumped my score up even higher and um you know that was a powerful thing i, I realized at that point you know it's one thing to win but to win in a certain style oh. um y- you know um
2: who is gets always- to win Hmm. and Olympics knowing it's in the bag and be able to go on full display and display all their hard work and their skill and Mm -hmm. their talent and their sacrifice and just be able to do it for the world to show you this is what I can do with the pressure off, the the gold medal in the bag. It doesn't happen. Yeah. Now looking
0: back, I'm terrified of it because I could have easily been like the late night talk (laughs) show host joke. Like, look at this guy. Let's look at this guy. He had it in the bag and he decided to go for it, which was weird because he already got it and he got carted off. You know, Let's see that uh, in slow motion. Um, so I, I'm definitely glad it worked out the way I, I, you know, had planned it. But yeah, I think, I think that was something of, you know, pride that I had, that I wanted to, show how hard I'd work, like you said, and and show what I was capable of. And, you know, like I had mentioned before, the first Olympics I attended, now going to the second one, I wanted to show that obviously it wasn't a fluke that I'd won that first Olympics, that I was here to stay and this is what I'm all about. And that was really my way to say that and show that um, to everyone. And, um, and people really respected that and really appreciated that. I got so much, you know, attention from doing that. And it's so funny because that you, you know the name of it because so many talk show hosts and people and the media just cannot for the life of them remember the name of the tricks, but the double McTwist 1260 is the only trick that everybody knows and I'm convinced they know it because it sounds like something you order at McDonald's. It does. does. For sure. I'll have the double McTwist. Oh, put the 1260 on it. Like Sean White. So that's definitely like was, you know, Oprah knew the name. I'm on all these talk shows. It was wild. When did you know you had this? So I think that you're such a great example of like following your passion and doing what you love but when did you know you know it's funny because you 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 put a dream in front of somebody when they're so young and it just seemed so close i was like i could do this and is arguably the best snowboarder of all time ladies and
2: gentlemen please welcome sean and
0: and so that was that was an amazing time and and talk about getting to relive you know one of the best days of your life all over again and it played out exactly the same way you know you're standing there and, you know, backstage and the two other, you know, the second and third place competitors go out and stand on the podium and they start raising the flag and you walk out and stand in the middle and they throw the medal on you and your whole family and everybody's in the front row.
2: and Please <laughs> welcome Sean White. And,
0: you know, it's really a... a, a memorable moment so I was so appreciative to get to live that all over again um so yeah heavy
2: (laughs) that is the end of Sean White part a more general coolness to come in part b
1: listener